if you start with a purpose without trust, people just go, oh, yeah, some, some other corporate bullshit. And they're not going to believe it. Today's Ever Talk conversation is with Will Butler-Adams, the managing director of Brompton Bikes. We start by talking about purpose and a surprising revelation that Brompton's main goal is to make cities a better place. We touch on topics of leadership, and in particular, engineers as leaders, and we talk about Will's own leadership style, which is about throwing hand grenades in and making sure nobody gets comfortable. Will, Will Butler-Adams, uh, Managing Director of Brompton Bicycles, really delighted to have you here today. Thank you very much. Uh, delighted for a number of reasons. One is I'm fascinated on the uh, about the journey of the product from being, my words, not yours, a sort of engineering novelty through to being a mainstream part of our uh, city fabric these days and, and almost a luxury brand item um, from what I can observe. So very interested to hear about that. And also fascinated because as part of the preparation for meeting you today, my chief operating officer approved the acquisition of a black edition Brompton as part of the research cost. So uh, nice. I can only thank you for that contribution to my my personal life. I thought it'd be really useful uh, just to, to, to learn a little bit more about the product um, and then talk about you and your role and, and how the, you uh, became MD of Brompton Bicycles and what that journey has been and meant for you. Well, um we have a product which some people will know about, others won't. Um, it's basically the Swiss Army penknife of the bicycle. And uh, it's a bike that folds up into a pretty useful package. So you can chuck it in the back of a car, you can stuff it in your flat, you can take it into a restaurant. Um, and then you can pop it open in, if you're half decent, less than 10 seconds. I'm only getting a little bit competitive. Um, if you're normal, more human, certainly less than 20 seconds, um, which is pretty quick to then dash about wherever you happen to be and, and, and get about your life in a sort of active and independent way. It came about because of Andrew Ritchie, who was the inventor. What he really wanted to create um, was a magic carpet. That was his idea. Uh, didn't quite pull that off when we got the Brompton instead back in 1975. And uh, he, like many inventors, knew what he'd created was completely awesome unfortunately nobody else did and uh, initially he tried to get Raleigh to make it they told him to uh, trot off into the long grass then he made it himself but ran out of money so he tried to raise a little bit of money just to keep him going 40 grand back in 82 um, no one would give him that money and finally it was one of his customers who did come to the rescue but it took 13 years of knockbacks for him to get off the ground and uh, in some respects, we learned two things. One, in our business, we believe strongly that if you believe in something, even if no one else does, then we should back you. Um, and the second thing is, you know, everybody says their customer is king. But in our case, right from the start, if it wasn't for our customer, we wouldn't be even here. So above all else, the customer is what matters. And there's a real art in learning from those knockbacks, taking those knockbacks positively. Is that something you've ingrained in the business? Um, I think, I mean, Andrew um, is unique in his determination. I mean, and I think most of us would have given up that culture of sort of mostly being different and not following the crowd is something that 
we is totally ripples through our organisation, and it starts with who we employ. We like to employ people who who are not normal, who don't tick all the boxes, who aren't the perfect grades, perfect experience, perfect tick tick tick. Because, funny enough. The more you look at it, we're all technically inverted commas perfect on our CV. But but what we need to create rich, interesting businesses that create interesting products is is diversity and and different perspective and a, a different way of going about life. Because we're not all the same. We're all just sort of furiously different, and that's what makes life interesting. I think that's such a pressing theme in so many of the businesses that we talk to when we're thinking about what a what a good business of the future looks like, and that that inclusivity agenda really starts with with recruitment and making sure that you look for uh, what's different and, and unique about people rather than what they're not. And um, how do you take what they are rather than what they're not during that recruitment process? So on that topic, how how did you end up in the managing director role? You're an engineer by background, is that right? Yeah. So I. Um did engineering at Newcastle, um, which was really because somebody in the careers, uh, you know, spit at school had told me that if you didn't know what you wanted to do, which I had no idea what I wanted to do, that this thing called engineering meant that it opened more doors and it closed. And I was not bad at maths and physics. So I thought, well, I'll have a go at that. Um, as it happened, I had a complete blast at university. I found the engineering quite tricky and half of it I didn't really understand, but I was sufficiently supported by friends to, um, do okay. Then I went to work for um, ICI in Middlesbrough. I thought I was going to go to South America and work for Bunky Paints, which is owned by ICI, but they, 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 they got me all excited. And then I got Middlesbrough instead, which wasn't quite as glamorous as Argentina. But um, in fact, it was bloody good fun. And I was given preposterous responsibility. I mean, I was, you know, at the age of 27 running a £150 million chemical plant that if it went wrong, it really would kill people. It was an adrenaline rush. It was 24-7. It was ascetic and, and nasty stuff that really did hurt people. It was flipping awesome. But it was also suffocating in the sense that it was so bureaucratic and it was so sort of everybody had an excuse to do nothing and stay where they were that eventually I decided I was going to go and do the MBA thing. And I thought I'd trot off to France to do that. Um, And then in the middle of all that, bizarrely, I met Andrew's best friend, Tim, who was the chairman of this little company that made bikes. And I was slightly worried my CV was a bit too boring. Um, and I went to meet Andrew, not really thinking I was going for a job. I just sort of was intrigued. And I saw this factory. And funny enough, it wasn't the bike that I saw. It was the factory. I just saw this thing that was so unbelievably inefficient in my mind. Actually, there was probably more efficiency there than I gave it credit for, but it, it, it was pretty flipping far from Nissan or wherever else I'd done work experience. And I just thought, London's cool. I can definitely make this place tick fast. And he couldn't make enough bikes at the time. And I could see why. So I thought I'll do a couple of years with this small little starty uppy inventory led business, go back and do my MBA and carry on in my normal life. And uh, well, that was 18 years ago. And I'd never got past the slightly mad world of Brompton. And the reason I'm still here is not because of the business opportunity or the fact that I could add value. Um, It's because of his bike and that bike. You know, I am not an urbanite. I'm not a natural city liver. I was brought up in Yorkshire um, and cities have always slightly intimidated me. But when I lived in London, 
and, and when I live in cities and, and, and spend time in cities, this funny little bite that Andrew came up with makes makes life happier. It gives you a sense of freedom. It, it just, I was cutting across town. I knew London like the back of my hand. And, and, and then I saw that this sort of freedom and this ha- enjoyment, I saw it in our customers. And, you know, that is very, very alluring and addictive. And that's why I'm still here. That, that freedom and enjoyment, is that, does that go to the heart of, of, of what Brompton's about now or is that about what you see in the, in the product? So, you know, in the early years, there were 26, 27 of us. Um, we were just trying to get bikes out the door. I mean, really, we were just up against it, working, you know, you know when you're small and one member of staff is ill and, and, and then somebody, um, you know, has, I don't know, can't come to work as on holiday. You're, you're, you're in dire straits. Everyone's rolling their sleeves up. You're trying to work on the factory or running machines. It's just hand to mouth. There's no lofty, you know, philosophy going on. You're just out hard at it. But as the company grew and I ended up taking over, we did a sort of management buyout in 2008. And um, at that point, when I took over from Andrew, we, Andrew and I, um, and some of our team sat down and said, well, what, well, what are we doing? We, we all know it. We all work every day and do it. But how do we articulate it? Because we are getting a bit bigger and we want to share it more broadly. And, um, and we, we set out what we stood for. And, and really, it was clear to us that what we were trying to do was change how people live in cities. We wanted to bring that freedom, that happiness to more people around the world because we could see that um, that this urbanisation was creating unhappiness and um, it was creating air pollution, creating people to be working more than they should and you know rattling around in metal tubes under the ground pretty miserable and this little bicycle that Andrew had conceived made life a little bit better it's it's certainly no um you know magic solution to the world's problems but it did contribute to making it better and once we grasped that and realized that's what we were about it really really has resonated through our company it's helped us define our strategy um and it's made us look at the world um, through that lens, and that's really been positive. And the problem of, of living in cities, some of those challenges that you, are, you articulated there, that's a, that's a global problem. Brompton's a, a, global, a global company, a global product, presumably. So, yeah, we now export about 75% of our product to 46 countries around the world. Um, and that is, as you say, it's because this, though... You know, every city, those of us have been fortunate to visit some of the wonderful cities around the world. They're all different and they all have their unique culture and they're, 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 that's what makes them so exciting. But there are far more things that are the same about cities than there are that are different. And those challenges in terms of mental health, physical health, that is a result of, of the sort of sedatory life that we live in cities um, – and the challenges with sort of, you know, in some respects, oppression that can come from being in a city and getting up in the morning and going to work and sitting at a desk and then going home. Um, somehow that's not right. And, and as the company has got bigger, we are trying to actually even go beyond our own bike and, and try and pull together um, 
you know, people who are involved in health, people who are involved in designing our spaces that we live in and saying, come on, guys, this is a team effort. Well, you know, some of this stuff is nuts and it's not that difficult to move from where we are now to a much more people-centric city design for the people that live in it rather than for the vehicles or for other indirect priorities. And if we designed our cities around those that live in them more, I think we'd all be a lot happier. And that's, you know, that's a really powerful and important conversation on, on a global stage. Who, at a practical level, who does that? Is that something that you do in an ambassadorial role? Or have you, have you managed to instill in the rest of the team or appoint specialist people to deal with that, this need to address that conversation? You've got to be careful because our business is about designing and making awesome bikes and products associated with them. And we can't lose sight. That is what we do. We are not a, you know, pressure organisation. We're not um, going to go off and, and, and change policy. Doesn't mean we don't contribute to that, but that is very, very much secondary to what we do. Because if we start thinking that we're something that we're not, we'll lose our way. Um, I think the strongest thing we can do is actually create and design awesome products because they touch many, many people. We've sold 650,000 Bromptons around the world uh, and, and counting. And that freedom, that delight that comes from owning a useful product affects the perspective of those people. Those people are lawyers. Those people are in politics. Those people are in our architects. And so that has a far bigger impact than us trying to become some movement it doesn't mean that we don't do it. It doesn't mean that we don't engage. It doesn't mean that we're not trying to pull together and stimulate debate. But you've got to be careful that you don't get too sucked into that and, and, and sort of think yourself to be sort of grander than you are. Fundamentally, we are a, a bike manufacturing company and we're obsessed with that. And actually, it's interesting listening, listening to you talk about that, because I think the, the clarity about where those boundaries are and where you can have impact is not, not always obvious in organizations and, and one of the key leadership skills is to is, is to identify what you can what you can operate on and what you what you can't I mean listening to that 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 idea about other people customers having an impact I was I was reminded of something we were talking about offline uh, where you'd been overwhelmed by being confronted with a, a, a Brompton bike club in Jakarta one one Sunday morning how does the community side of Brompton operate alongside the business side of Brompton so it's interesting because our the, the the sort of the Brompton that we see in Europe, particularly in the UK and London, is one of a tool. It's a bashed, used, day in, day out workhorse tool for a lot of people to move, and it's part of their daily life. Of just, it's like having a cup of tea in the morning. You get on your Brompton and you're off. That isn't the case in Asia, um, and when we first saw it, Andrew and I, uh, Andrew found it a bit, 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 he's like, what, 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 that's not what it was designed for. What on earth are they doing? That's not right. How dare they? I designed it for this and they're using it for that. And what it was, it, it was a recreational tool. It was a, it was, a, you know, it, for our Asian customers, this is a bike that's handmade in London, made for them. You can design your own bike specifically for you. Um, the price point in Asia relative to everything else is high. So it's a very special item. And 
Whereas the Bromptons in London are smashed, bashed, covered in dirt in Japan or in Singapore. They're polished, looked after. People don't use them during the week. They come out at the weekend. They meet a whole load of friends, you know, 20, 30 friends. Then they all go off for a long ride. And then they have somewhere, some lunch somewhere and have a great time. So interestingly, in Asia, the community side of, of the Brompton, which has not been sort of um, nurtured or created by us, it's been being created by our customers is incredibly strong. And in some respects, you know, the bike itself has delivered more than we even imagined. It's sort of, it's created communities. And and actually, one of the other things that can come out of cities is loneliness. You know, when you're in, in, in villages, there is a stronger sense of community. You can live in a city and be renting a flat and in many cases not know who it is that lives two doors down. Um, and you may have all the friends you like in the world uh, at the end of your fingertip, but they're not real. They're, they're your virtual friends. You own a Brompton, uh, certainly in Asia. If you own a Brompton, you immediately become part of a real community of real people who'll meet you and you'll cycle off and you'll do fun things together. And um, and it's, it's fascinating because we didn't even conceive that. That has happened naturally through the product itself. Well, we're welcoming you into the Zebra community today because that's exactly the same driver, which is we're all we're all in different businesses, all facing different micro challenges, but fundamentally focused on the same the same desire to make better businesses have better impact in society. So, um, it's, it's it's great to hear how central that is to to the operations of Brompton and, and also your own personal um, drivers within the organisation. I caught you having a quick read of our future fundamentals report that's available from the uh, the zebraproject.co website earlier on. Was there anything that stood out from that for you? Yeah, I mean, there's one bit that which I recognise and, and I concur with, which is which is this business about trust, and um, and I think you know at, right at the top of an organisation, the place to start with trust is recognising that you, the leadership, are vulnerable, not perfect. Um, And if you are saying to your staff and saying to your team that you're not perfect and that you need their help, you're immediately opening yourself up to trust because everybody knows that everybody is imperfect. Once you start getting some trust in your organisation, then people start believing what you're saying. And after the trust comes purpose. If you if you start with a purpose without the trust, people just go, oh yeah, some some other corporate bullshit, and they're not going to believe it. So trust comes from trust. Then you can start building your purpose and your mission and what you're trying to achieve. How is it being an engineer leading a business? Is 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 that are, are there are there kill, key skills and behaviours that have come from your engineering background that you rely on, or is it something that's just uh, unnoticed and subliminal in the way you operate? So, in the context of Brompton, um, the engineering matters a lot because ultimately, the thing that is our brand, that is our reputation, is the product, and the product is not a sort of, you know, two-year buy it and then chuck it in the bin. You know, our bikes will last 10 years. We have some bikes that are still going after 30 years. And there is a trust, a very strong trust between us and our customer that that bike has been made and considered in its design for 
to look after the customer for the entire life. And if you're whizzing down a hill at 30 miles an hour and something breaks, it's not funny. Um, and it's a serious, serious bit of kit. So having an appreciation and an understanding of that matters a great deal because it allows the company led by an engineer to prioritize that above all else. So, you know, even if there's the trendy this or the we've got pressure on sales, that understanding engineering allows us as a business to always put that and that engineering quality at the heart of our business. Um, In terms of leadership, I think um, that is, that's a separate thing that comes into your life and um and in from a personal perspective quite how it happened but i ended up getting involved in organizing expeditions um early on in my life i was obsessed with adventure and i took an expedition up the amazon and i climbed a few mountains and all that stuff and um you know, nothing has changed. My 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 ambition was always greater than my capability, and uh, so some of these expeditions really did go pear shaped, and some of them, we, you know, we very nearly died, and things got a bit hairy, and so, and I've made some absolute crass, horrendous decisions, which which, you know, that's how you learn, and um, luckily nobody did die but it got a bit close on one or two occasions and um and that's informed my leadership and my leadership is very much that my role is to define what we're trying to achieve um but to then find fantastic people to deliver it um my role is to serve my staff because they have the skills and knowledge that I don't have that's why we employed them because we search that skills and knowledge and and my role on that of my management team is to having found those fantastic people to tell them where we're heading and then give them the tools to deliver, but not to tell them what to do. And often our staff find that quite difficult because they arrive and they say, well, what do you want me to do? And we say, oh, we've got no idea. What sort of silly question is that? You know, this is what we're trying to achieve. You go off and tell us what you need to deliver it, but don't ask me what to do. That's why I implode you, you muppet. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm a definite believer that your ambition should be beyond your capabilities, and, and absolutely that feeds through into the the workforce who you recruit and, and who you manage them. And uh, you know, different topic for a different time. But we we talk a lot in the project about the lessons you learn from from pushing yourself and and failing, and then improving in an iterative way. And I think uh, some of the some of the most creative organisations are the ones that can get their heads around that without uh, without beating themselves up. Interestingly, in, in the day job, we uh, I, I work with lots of engineers who are leaders, and I think the one. Uh, characteristic that comes out for me is that sense of, of curiosity, uh, fa- being fascinated by problems um, and uh, obsessive about solutions. But there's a sort of dual, dual engineering quality. I, uh, I mean, clearly, clearly, the Brompton as a as a product, as a bike, is is innovative and is and is and is clever engineering. How about um, the production process? Is that something which you you look at as, as as a source for innovation, or is it or is it relatively straightforward? It's funny. Um, we have a, a society that is, in my opinion, obsessed with creating identical little sausages that come out of the education system. And as soon as you pop out the education system, we then have a business that never stops going on about how we've got to innovate and be different. But we, we, we're creating these identical sausages that are little robots. And it's sort of similar. People look at Brompton and go, 
you know, we just spent six and a half years developing an electric drive system for our bike. We, we've had to work with Williams F1. It's, it's pushing the, the absolute boundaries of what science and physics will allow us to do to try and make a little motor that can fit into a Brompton and be useful. Um, and people think that is innovation inside a business. But that's, that's like a tenth of the innovation. The innovation is you, how you lead. The innovation is, for example, in Brompton, we have a nine-day fortnight. Well, there aren't many companies that do that. And it was like eight years ago, 10 years ago, we, 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 Michelle came to me and said, well, Will, we work 40 hours a week. That's 80 hours in two weeks. Let's be honest, we all know nobody does plumbing 40 hours a week. We'll do way too much. I mean, all my staff do far too much work. So um, how's about instead of doing the 80 hours in 10 days, we do it in nine? I'm like, I couldn't give a stuff. Nine sounds fine to me. That means at Brompton, if you want, in the management team, when you join us, you can either work a five-day week, four-and-a-half-day week, or nine-day fortnight. Like 70% of our staff do the nine-day fortnight. Every other weekend's a long weekend. I mean, who's not going to like that? Or better. Totally awesome. But every single thing you do, we have our races around the world. We have the Brompton World Championships. We have heats in Mexico. We have heats in Japan. They fly to London. We're on the Mall. You know, 750 people. The bikes are all folded. It's a Le Mans start. You're not allowed to wear Lycra. You've got to wear a jacket and a tie. It's mental. That is innovation. And the whole global event costs us basically nothing. And we have head cams, bum cams, WeChat, chat, you know, Instagram, creating buzz. So everything, you know, innovation is, is just a, an attitude. It's not, a, it's not a one-dimensional thing. You've got to look at how we make it, every little thing. We've got raspberry pies on the line. We've got every tiny little thing. Just challenge why. Like a child, why? Why? Why do we do it that way? Why do we have to do it that way? You know, challenge and take technology from a different industry. Take learning from a different industry. All this benchmarking within your industry, that's as good as a waste of time because you'll only ever be as good as your competition. You've got to reach way outside of your industry and and sniff about and find stuff and learn and, and be inquisitive. And then hopefully you'll offer better value to your customer. That's what it's all about. You want to offer value. You want to make your customer feel like that precious investment they made into your business was was a good investment and it's delivered to them. I can I can feel the listeners to this podcast cheering on the idea that there's some practical advice coming here because so many of these issues are lofty and, and academic and actually the, the beauty of talking to, to people like yourself about actually how they do it in the day job is, is really where the magic comes for, for helping educate people and inform people and, and I guess ultimately uh, empower and encourage people to make, make those changes. How, how how do you make innovation cultural in an organisation? There's lots of talk about that, but what, what, if you've got some practical guidance, what would it be? Yes. So what happens, or what I've observed, so with Brompton, maybe we were 27 staff, we're now like 400 and nearly 50. So we keep reinventing ourselves. You, you can't try and plan your business to be too big at any one time because then it becomes irrelevant. So you, you sort of take the next step and then you have to redesign it, reorganize, restructure, and then you go through this. Like, it's like a sort of snake shedding its skin and starting all over again and growing and growing and growing. And um, when you're small, when we were small, I mean systems, procedures, HR, budget, forget it. We weren't doing any of that. We were just like all hands to the pumps, hold on tight, and let's get the bloody bikes out the door. And that was about, if we could deliver that, yippee. And then on it goes and on it goes. And then you start having strategy. Then you have HR departments. Then you have this, that, and the other, and it all gets bigger and bigger. 
And people think the role of the leaders is to bring order. Yes, we need procedures, we need systems, we need to organize everything. Because we've got all these people now, we've got to make sure it's all organized. And in many respects, that's true. You do. You need more order when you've got more people to, to, to manage the communication, the priorities, and, and make sure everyone's pointing in the right direction. But at the top of the organization, actually, you've got to be very careful. My role, a lot of my role is to create disorder. And you've got to create, stimulate people to be out of their comfort zone because human beings like order. My alarm goes at quarter to six. I get out of bed. I go and have a pee. I then brush my teeth. I mean, literally, for the first 20 minutes of the day, I could tell you within about five meters where I am, I feed the dogs. I let them out of that. You know, it's just like routine. And to stimulate innovation and to stimulate change, you need to break the routine. So I basically see myself as, you know, Rambo. I'm basically charging around Brompton. I've got a couple of belts, shoom, one side, whoosh, the other, and I've got grenades. And when I see our business, and they're all in their little rut, and they're, oh, yes, it's all organised. Oh, aren't we clever? Little tick, 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 all the little, fucking get the grenade. Ooh, boom. Holy shit. Oh, my God, what's happened? Oh, 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 panic, 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 panic. What's going on? What's going on? And guess what? Something comes out of it, some new insight. You know, if you walked into your business tomorrow and said, um, I run this business. Today, none of you are doing what you thought you were going to do. All of your meetings today are cancelled. I don't care what meeting it is. Ring up, it's cancelled. I want everybody to change desk. Just see what happens. It'll freak them out. What? 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 No, no, but I'd organise this meeting. Oh my God, you know, move desk, move desk. But I, I've been on this desk for two years. I love this desk. I've got the, I've got all sorts. No, no, everything you thought you were doing. I mean, and that's what you need to do in business. You need to keep prodding, poking, jiggling to, to stimulate innovation. And if it's not coming from the top, if you're not allowing people to experiment, if you're not giving them room to try something, and if you're not making it normal, that if they see something, oh, that looks interesting. <laughs> Oh, I'll try that. Oh, they're not allowed to do that. You know, if you don't create that culture from the top, it'll be snuffed out. I've got this image of you fully tooled up going into the factory. Bring it on. Rambo style. I'm never going to get that out of my mind. So I appreciate that. That's that's fantastic, uh, fantastic guidance. Thanks for listening to part one of the podcast. Part two is now available for you to listen to and enjoy. But also, please visit our website at www.thezebraproject.co find out information on further podcasts and insights and also how to get involved with the Zebra Project. <laughs>